Well, let's turn attention to God's Word this morning. We want to be continuing in our study of 1 Peter chapter 3. Last week we began to look at verses 13 to 17. I want to pick up on those verses again today. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to be in your word this day, and most of all, we thank you that you're a God who has spoken. And in your mercy, you've superintended the delivery of that revelation through your prophets and through the writers, so that we could have the God-breathed word available to us. And even beyond that, part of the ministry of your Holy Spirit is to illumine our hearts So, Lord, do exactly that as we have a chance to turn our attention to the things you spoke from eternity and had good reasons for sharing. We put our time in your hands, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. These verses, 13 to 17, as I talked to you about last time, are are really about defending the gospel, uh, presenting the defense for the truth. That's sort of the thread going through them. And the principle here is that we who are sojourners and exiles in this world, which is one of the overarching messages earlier in 1 Peter, we who are sojourners and exiles in this world, pilgrims, aliens is the way the NIV translates it, we are people who are called not merely to live a certain way. We talked about the the, the countercultural lifestyle that God has called his people as aliens, as exiles too. But we are a people who are to speak a certain way. Not only live, but speak. You see, a a lifestyle witness, a silent lifestyle witness in this world is not enough. Although it is critically important. Because God wants the truth of the gospel fleshed out in people. He doesn't want you living in a way contrary to his word, of course. Uh, But a silent lifestyle is simply not enough. No one has ever, ever been saved solely based on the lifestyle of someone. Why? Because unsaved mankind, looking at your lifestyle, if you were the most consistent, growing, maturing believer you could be, but they had no message to link to it, their conclusion would always be, well, I guess those are the good works that you do to be right with God. That must be how I get right with God, is through good works. You see, the lifestyle, as important as it is, and there's no question it's been stressed in 1 Peter, can't exist separated from the words. God is saying, I want you to be sharing the truth. Our walk must be tied to our talk, our words of witness. We're not only to be reflecting the kingdom but talking about it as well. 
2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God's making his appeal through us. He certainly called us to live a certain way as ambassadors. But it's pretty hard to make an appeal through us unless there's words. You know, that's the issue. So he says, you're my ambassadors and I've called for you to share something with people. To communicate that which I have breathed out from eternity. So that people could find the truth. What we began to look at last time in the first part of these verses, verses 13 to 17, were what I'm calling three prerequisite attitudes to be effective ambassadors. uh, To be people who are uh, speaking, not only living a certain way. And that first one was to be zealous for what's good. We are to continue to live with that good orientation, the countercultural, good defined by God's word, by the way, not by the world around us, but living in accordance with God's word. And that's part of our witness. And God says, I want you to do that in a certain way. I want you to be zealous about it. And we talked about what that meant, uh, literally boiling with passion. <laughs> so how, how much of a boiler are you in terms of your orientation to your lifestyle? to living in a way pleasing to the Lord. Are you boiling over with passion about doing that? And God says, that's all I'd like you to be, because that has some bearing. The world around you can pick up on you if you're just suffering for Jesus, or if you're living excited by the privilege of being able to follow him and align with his purposes and plan. Uh, One of the people who had a great impact on me early in my ministry is a man named Howie Hendricks, Uh, the prof from Dallas Theological Seminary, and and he said, the problem is in the church, talking about the evangelical church, most people would make a good cover for the book of Lamentations, and that's not a great witnessing tool. Uh, Not that the book isn't, because of course you can share the gospel using that book too, and bridge it to the answers to life and how one is found finds the right answer, but the life that's focused there, you know, and God says, listen, I want you zealous, boiling over, I want that to be the case, you're excited by the privilege of being able to live for the Lord, and find his enabling power as you walk and grow as disciples, so how boiling are you? Before I leave it, one last word on that, Uh, there's a great danger from not having zeal, there's a great danger Remember, let's set it against the context of the people that we were praying for today. Let's, let's put it right today. This morning, there were people during our quiet time that I hope you were bringing before the Lord. People that you care about, uh, family, circle of friends, or people, your neighbor, or whoever God's been laying on your heart. There's a great danger for not having zeal. To say that you have found the truth, but you lack any zeal for the truth... In the mind of the unsaved person, simply undercuts what you're professing. It darkens the light. It's like, how could it really be true, and and you're not excited about it? How, How could that really be the case, and yet it seems to not affect you? And those are great questions. The world around us, very perceptive. They read the visual clues. So, how's your zeal there? That's where we were. Well, today I want to pick up on the second and third of these attitudes. The first one we encounter in verses 13 and 14. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, or be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. 
yet do it with gentleness and respect. Second prerequisite attitude. I want to be zealous for good. And I don't want to be afraid of the world's response to living for the Lord and sharing the truth. Don't be afraid about it. Fear is a tremendous obstacle in the life of a believer. It's an obstacle to the lifestyle. Remember, we're talking about all these countercultural things. And earlier in the, in the second chapter, we were talking about the fact it can be sort of threatening and risky to have these countercultural lifestyles. It could set us up for exploitation and, and certainly the anger of the culture around us when we don't quite fit them. Uh, so there's a danger there. But it's also an obstacle in speaking out the truth. Obstacle in living it, an obstacle in speaking it out. Uh, to speak the gospel can be scary. When we share the light of the gospel with people, and this is something you need to understand. When we share the gospel with people, many are not going to respond to that with gratitude. Oh, I'm so thankful that you've opened the that you've shared these eternally significant truths with me. Uh, some will, uh, but not many. Uh, most, if you get to the point where you're really sharing about the gospel, end up responding to it with opposition and rejection. Because it offends them. It cuts at the heart of everything they've believed as their worldview, their view of themselves. And if they have any understanding of God or any view of God, their view of God, it cuts right at the heart of all of that stuff. You have to have a humility of sorts inside to be teachable about anything, but especially about the most important, eternally significant issues. You've got to have some, some level of humility. humility. So when you share, people are not going to be happy about it. I was thinking of a classic example of that, maybe extreme, but nonetheless it draws the point home. In Acts chapter 7, after Stephen, one of the original deacons set aside to serve the church, is out speaking, he's, he's alienating people, not by trying to, but just sharing the gospel, and they drag him off, you remember? And he has this opportunity to make a defense of the gospel before the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, listen to these words as you get near the end of the seventh chapter of Acts, beginning of verse 54. Now, when they'd heard these things... And he, if you go over what he had shared with them, he's showing how throughout the unfolding of the Old Testament, God's plan was always pointing to the Messiah and pointing to what God was doing and all this. You know, it was, it was really a pretty good message, actually. Although he ended it by telling the people, you stiff-necked, you know. Uh, I don't know, whether was he under the Spirit's control then? I, I hope so, but, that, but anyway, there, it was a mixed message. I'll at least say that at times. Uh, but at any rate, as he did that, listen to what it says. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. And, and listen, they weren't just unhappy with it. It goes on, and this is the way it translates in the ESV. They ground their teeth at him. Now, that's being angry, where you, you're so angry, you just can't, you're, you know, that's the picture. I mean, very graphic picture. And you say, that's how people responded to him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of the Lord, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man, he's standing at the right hand of God. Which, by the way, was confirming the whole message he'd been sharing with them. And they then cried out with a loud voice, stopped up their ears, and rushed at him. Not to go forward in the meeting, all right? That wasn't the picture that was emerging. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man, a rising leader in the Pharisees, 
named Saul, later to have his name changed by God to Paul. So, when you make the message plain, there's a chance that making the message plain doesn't make people happy with you. All right? Uh, they gnash their teeth. Uh, at least, if they're real polite people, they might be gnashing inside, but they're not doing it on the outside. If they're just, depends on what other experiences they had, they might gnash it at you. Now, why is that? Why is that the dynamic? And Jesus makes it very plain to us. For example, in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, he says, And this is the judgment that the lights come into the world. Remember, he's the light of the world. He says, the lights come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and doesn't come into the light, lest his works be exposed, and the gospel exposes works. It's not because you're pleading your finger on things like, oh, well, you did this naughty, naughty thing, and this naughty, naughty thing. It's getting at the heart of the works, which is that you've lived your life breaking the greatest of the commandments. How Whatever you think is tied to your accountability for God, you've misjudged it. Everyone has sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, and you are helpless and hopeless and without God in this world, simply existing as an object of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2. But God, but God has a solution to that. Well, that message cuts at the very heart of people, you see. And they don't want that revealed. They want to think they're pretty good after all. So when we explain the message to people, we risk rejection and ridicule, that can happen with the countercultural lifestyle. It also happens with the message. You know, I've been ridiculed because of that message. Uh, in the university context that I've been in for so many years, people thought I had committed intellectual suicide by orienting myself toward a certain way. Uh, and others in other, la- other areas uh, didn't use as sophisticated a term as intellectual suicide, but they got the same point across uh, when you're communicating with people. So that's the reality that we face. So here's the issue. Are we going to, will you risk that? Will you risk rejection and ridicule? And God brings a question in here, and he says, well, listen, who's going to harm you for doing good? That's a good question. He poses it to us who struggle with fear, because nobody needs the question if they're not struggling with fear. I mean, the question has bearing only on those people, which I'm assuming probably means all of us uh, here have had that struggle at times, as we think about the culture and the world that we find ourselves in. Uh, He poses, he says, listen, most people won't harm us for following God's word. It's not as risky as it may at first seem. Yet, truth is, we have to admit the truth, at times people can be fed up with trying to follow God's, with us following God's word, and they can attack us and persecute us, reject us, for the countercultural lifestyle that's being commanded up to this point in First Peter. I mean, that can happen. But the, the way the question is framed here, and checking the Greek scholarship, it seems to be clear, Uh, He is saying, while this can happen, it's not the normal thing that will happen. That the world won't accept your message, that's normal. That they will persecute you for having shared it, not so normal. But here's the thing. One episode of that happening to us seems to have more weight 
than 20 episodes of it not happening to us. You ever found that to be true in your life? Uh, you know, if we've been sharing and we've had one really sort of bad experience with that, it seems to greatly impact us in a way that 20 pretty good experiences don't seem to impact us in quite the same way. We still struggle with fear. God's realistic. He says, okay, that's, that's a possibility. He also says, tied to this, is most people aren't going to harm you for sharing the gospel. It's not quite as risky as you think, but it could happen. And then he makes a promise in light of that. He says, now listen, if you should, quote, suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Righteousness' sake, by the way, here is defined as choosing to live in that countercultural lifestyle and also choosing to be vocal about the gospel and the rest of God's word. The two, again, linking together, lifestyle, words. It says that that's, what, that's how you're reflecting and demonstrating righteousness in the midst of a fallen world. So if you're persecuted in some way for that, God says if you suffer for that, you will be blessed. Unjustified suffering will not rob you from blessing. Back in the ninth verse of the third chapter, we discovered, remember we were talking about the verb and the noun, <laughs> that the verb of blessing is different than the being blessed, and that noun is a state of being. And he's saying, listen, that inner sense of God being both pleased with us and using the circumstances of our life, he says, that'll persist no matter what people's response is to you. No matter how they respond to the lifestyle, no matter how they respond to the words, you will have this blessing, that sense inside, deep inside, of being pleasing to me, and that I'm using whatever the responses are to the life that pleases me. I'm using it. He says, this will occur to you. So even if our risky choice, in this case could lead to suffering and rejection. God says, don't worry, I'm there. Uh, your blessing won't be lost. Oh, you might lose some of the blessing if you defined it as a fiscal uh, fruit or something, uh, but not the real blessing as the Bible describes it. He says, nothing can touch that. Uh, I'll be there, and I will strengthen you. I was thinking of Paul's experience in Second Timothy chapter 4 where he was facing some really difficult things that eventually, soon after writing it, was going to lead to his martyrdom. And everybody abandoned him. Can you imagine, after a long ministry like that, everybody took off, saying, things aren't looking good for Paul, see you later, you know, we're gone. And that's basically what happened. But listen to these verses, starting in verse 16 of the fourth chapter of Second Timothy. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. O oh Lord, may it not be charged against them. Pretty gracious response, isn't it? <laughs> but then he goes on, he said, But the Lord stood by me. But the Lord strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and that the Gentiles might hear it. And so I was rescued from the lion's mouth, and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And he wasn't saying, I'll be delivered out of this prison. I've escaped the death sentence. He was martyred. But that didn't change the reality of what he said. <laughs> it doesn't matter what they do. The Lord will deliver me. He will rescue me. He will bring me safely into his hands. Nothing, as we've sung today out of Romans 8, nothing can separate me from the love of God. You know, no matter what's going on around me, I have that stability. Do you have that stability? 
That's what he says he found. So have you ever experienced blessing in the midst of the suffering? So God says, I don't want you to fear what the world around you fears. You've been conditioned by the world because you've grown up in it to fear what it fears. But I don't want you to fear what it fears. So what does the fallen world fear? Well, preeminently, the fallen world is made up of people who fear having to face suffering and rejection. I submit to you, that's, that explains a lot about humanity right there. We fear having to suffer, and we fear rejection. We fear, is humanity, not finding acceptance with our peers or acceptance in the culture that we're having to live in. And it starts early. Kids are fearful of peer pressure and ostracizing, and it never goes away. That just continues to, in maybe more sophisticated ways, get drummed into people. The outcome of that sort of fear is that in the world, people decide, I'm going to compromise the truth to avoid those possibilities. If holding to something or living in a certain fashion could lead to suffering or rejection, a loss of acceptance, uh, I won't do those things. Because that is the thing I really fear. And God says to us, knowing that's the world we find ourselves in, he says, listen, don't fear what the world fears. He wouldn't say that unless we had a strong temptation to do it. And we are conditioned people. He says, don't fear what the world fears. There's much worse things than suffering and rejection and not having acceptance. God needs to put it with that sort of certainty and clarity for us, I think. He says, what are you afraid about? You know, yeah, that's, that'll hurt, but there's worse things. My dad, to a degree, sometimes as I was growing up, would his, it wasn't that he was not a compassionate man, but I think he, with his boys, it was like, I've got to deal with my boys a little differently than with my daughters. And, uh, uh, oh, this happened? Uh, oh, well, not, not bad. Throw a Band-Aid on. Use the hose. Wash it off. It'll be all right, you know. Uh, there's worse things that could happen to you, you know. You don't always use that word, but that was the essence of it. And I don't begrudge that, but I'm just saying, God is like saying, hey, wait, there's a whole lot worse things can happen than that the group that you'd like to accept you don't accept you, that you get ostracized from a group. That was much worse things. So what should the redeemer, what should the redeemed be fearful of? Because we're not supposed to be fearful. He doesn't say don't have fear. He says don't have the fear the world has. Don't, don't be afraid of what they're afraid about. So what should you be afraid about? Well, classically, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So obviously all of us are to have a fear of the Lord, which is a sense of awe of his presence and surrender before him and seeking to be right with him. Yeah. So yeah, the thing should be driving our fear, our phobos in the Greek, ought to be our understanding of who God is and wanting to be right with him. You know, and knowing we have to have accountability before him and we want to please him with our life. So that's what we should be fearing. But it's more than that. He says here, contextually, the fear should be linked to our call from God to live this surrendered countercultural lifestyle in the midst of this world and to share a message the world doesn't really want to hear in the midst of the culture that God has placed us in. 
Paul develops this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in this way. In verse 11, after talking, by the way, about the judgment seat of Christ, before whom believers stand before the Lord, not at the great white throne, but the judgment seat, and God assesses our life, how it's worked out as his redeemed children in this world. Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, (laughs) that's the phrase, he says, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. Isn't it interesting? Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Oh, you mean there's a connection between the fear of the Lord and being vocal about, about the gospel? Yeah, that's tied to the ambassadorship, isn't it? And then he goes on, and he says, verses 14 and 15, For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for everyone, and therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What's he saying? What I fear as a believer is not living for him. Not sharing this message that I'm convinced is the only saving message. He said, that's what I fear. That's what I fear. You say, well, aren't you reading something into that? And the answer is no. I mean, biblically, expositionally, that's what it's saying. But think about what Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, as he met with the Ephesian elders for the last time, as he was on uh, his way to Jerusalem, eventually imprisonment that never did end until his martyrdom a number of years later. Listen to these words. But I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to me, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, which is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He understood my life is absolutely a zero unless I finish the course God laid out for me. Now, we have differing calls. But all of us are called to follow the course he's laid out for us. Uh, How that fleshes out depends on the gifts and the opportunities and so forth. That's what he was afraid about. He said, then to the Ephesian elders, he said, I didn't screw it up with you guys. You know, when I was here, I was carrying this out. That's what I wanted to do. Living for Christ, sharing with the lost, fulfilling the purpose of God. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's going to be sometimes an everyday encounter with the realities that could cause us to fear. You know, fear people, fear that people will cause us to suffer due to our countercultural lifestyle and our often unwanted words of light, often prevents people, believers, from living surrendered lives and sharing the gospel with other people. The Bible is very plain about that. That's the reality. So pray for boldness. Uh, in Acts chapter 4.29, early in the church's experience, they said, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They knew they weren't going to do that unless God did something. They also knew that they were dealing with a very real fear inside. So, so God, give us boldness. That's what we need. You got. And I'm going to come because we have a pep rally trying to talk ourselves into stuff. You're going to come because you do something in us. Give us boldness. 
Later on in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20, it says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayers and supplications, and to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints, and also for me. Now, what are you supposed to pray for Paul about? He says, That the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which and I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly. And he ends by saying, as I ought to speak. It's not just Paul, all of us. As we ought to speak. We're redeemed children of God. <laughs> We're in the position we are because of all Jesus did for us. He says, well, how ought you to speak? We ought to be that way. <laughs> Sharing that message with people. Not being afraid to live a certain way. Not being afraid to speak a certain way. But who's sufficient to that? Uh, we all need God's help to make that a reality. So he says, listen, get the fear issue sorted out. And then he comes to the last of the things. He says a prerequisite attitude, number three. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor Christ as the Lord of your heart. To honor here means to consecrate, to... The idea is dedicating. The idea is setting apart as holy. You don't have to set... This isn't talking about Jesus being holy. He already is that. That's part of his characteristic. That's one of the attributes of God. So he's not saying that. But what he is, he's saying to us, make sure he's holy to you. Meaning you've dedicated yourself, setting him aside as Lord, as the Lord should be. Our holy God. He calls for us as ambassadors, as... Aliens, sojourners, and exiles in this world. He says, decide to let Christ be the Lord of your life. Now, why does he add that before he then moves on in the verse to talking about making defense of the gospel? Uh, why, why does he say that? Well, it's a very simple answer. Biblically, you can't and I can't impact the world around me Unless Christ is Lord of my life. If I have a heart dedicated to Him, if I have surrendered to His control, my witness in words then builds on a foundation of a surrendered life. And God makes no mistake here. He links our witness to our Lordship issue. Here and elsewhere. Let me develop it a little bit more. Why is he link it that way? Well, here's the answer. Lordship is so important. Letting Christ be the Lord of our life. Not the Savior, but the Lord. Why does he emphasize that? Because we have no way of touching and impacting on an unsaved person and impacting in an unsaved world based to our own convincing speech our own personableness. Because something has to happen to pierce to the division of soul and spirit. Something has to penetrate to the very deepest level of a person, and your words will never do that. And you will never be successful doing it. Well, what does it take? The Word of God and the Holy Spirit's ministry. That's why, at the beginning of the book of Acts, Christ has His disciples gather, and He says, Listen, Wait in Jerusalem. You will receive power once the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
And then, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Then you'll do it. Not till then. Then that will take place. We can't be an effective witness without the Holy Spirit's enablement because only the Holy Spirit can penetrate hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can convict people, not us. I might make somebody feel guilty, but that's not the same thing, you see. Uh, Something has to go a lot deeper than that. Uh, The world's full of people who can make other people feel guilty, but that's not what it means, all right? Something has to go deep. Only the Holy Spirit's ministry combined with the Word of God can penetrate that deeply into people's hearts. And yet, as we study through the New Testament, we discover that the enabling power of the Holy Spirit is a very conditional thing. All who turn to Christ as Savior are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and it's one of those things that happens when we turn to Christ. That We didn't have anything to do with that. God did that. So all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But not all believers are filled with the Spirit in the sense of controlled and enabled. Uh, only those who are surrendered before him, drawing sort of consciously upon the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, are in a place where that can be there. So we're not talking about how to get the Spirit, which is a mistake I think a lot of people make. It's not that. It's trying to, we're talking about how does the Spirit get us, you know. How, how, as a redeemed child, do I allow the Holy Spirit to start to enable me to do what I can't do myself, even if I want to do it? And that comes down to surrender. Only the surrendered independent believer are empowered. For the unsurrendered believer, and I challenge you sometime to do a study on this through the New Testament, I think it will be clear to you. For the unsurrendered believer, we're talking believers now, we're not talking the unsaved. For the unsurrendered believer, the Holy Spirit's ministry in their life is primarily concentrated on conviction of their hearts that they haven't got Christ first place. Because God knows, unless he is, nothing else is going to work. You're not going to be able to grow as a disciple. You're not going to be able to be useful in my hands and ministry to other people. So it makes sense, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit would primarily be working in the life of a redeemed child of God to say, get off the throne. Let Jesus be the throne of your life. Live for him. Present your body as a living sacrifice, as Romans 12.1 puts it. Make a choice. Let Jesus be in center. Decide to obey. Later on in the fourth chapter, we'll encounter it. I was going to say shortly, but you know, that may not be. But in, uh, in the fourth chapter, in verse 2 of First Peter, it says, Paul, Peter says, Live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for your human passions, but for the will of God. Live for the will of God. Part of that is to be surrendered, present your body's only sacrifice, fulfilling his call and purpose in your life. He says you've already, actually the literal Greek here says you've wasted enough of your life already. You mean as a believer I could waste my life? Yeah, you did a great job of it before you turned to Christ and you can continue to do a great job of wasting your life. God says don't waste any more of it. Live for my will. And you can't do that unless you find power beyond yourself because, uh, and that's why surrender, enablement, trusting in the Holy Spirit's enablement is there. The Holy Spirit provides that empowering we need to grow as a disciple, to live that countercultural lifestyle consistently, and most importantly, to share the gospel effectively. And apart from that, it's just so many words. 
And that's why Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit. Or literally, be ye being filled is an ongoing, continuing process. Let that be the characteristic of your life. Last word, and the team can come up. An unsurrendered ambassador is of limited use to God. An unsurrendered ambassador is of but limited use to God. Because by very definition, we're just jars of clay, you know. (laughs) I want to be useful, but I can only be useful through his enablement. We need that enabling power. You're going to come anywhere short of surrender before the Lord. So I challenge you about that today. You know, God's talked about some prerequisite attitudes for impacting and defending the gospel. Lord willing, the next time, which won't be next Sunday, but the Sunday following that, Lord willing, because next Sunday uh, uh, Chris will be sharing with us, but uh, we'll turn attention to the defense and some strategies that God lays out here as we actually, as surrendered ambassadors, seek to share that message in the midst of a fallen world. Friend, enabler, isn't it wonderful that he is all of those things? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, for the opportunity that we've had to gather with brothers and sisters, to sing, to pray, to share. Thank you for your word. Take your word and plant it in each of us. You know exactly those things and attitudes and actions in each of our lives to which it applies this day. We trust your loving work in each of us to make it clear. And we'll thank you for that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. See you next week.